Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for the blessings you have given to each one of us. We pray that we would always strive to do your will, to put you first, to set a good example, to be people of courage and faith, to be people of compassion and mercy. Father, we thank you for, again, the blessings you've, you've bestowed, and we pray that you would always be with those here within this assembly and those watching afar. We also pray that you'd be with those, all those, searching and striving to do your will today. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is uh, good to see everybody here. It's good to be back here. I think, you know, last week we uh, were unable to host Sabbath, and I think that was the first time we ever canceled services, and um, it says a lot about the storm since we live in, live in Missouri. Today is uh, very cold outside, but thankfully no rain, and um, certainly a blessing to, uh, again, be here. I'd like to welcome everybody here. I'd like to welcome those listening online. I'd also like to welcome any guests we might have with us. Well, my uh, sermon title today is Fossilized Traditions. Fossilized Traditions. You know, in this message, we're going to review some of the long-standing traditions we see within nominal worship. You know, the fact is, so many of the beliefs we find within Christianity are simply missing from the Bible. It's not there. It's fossilized traditions. It's been handed down from decade and century after century and continues to propagate today. Whereas believers, though, we're commanded to study. We're commanded, we're told within the word to study. We're told to have a ready answer to all who might ask. In Paul's epistle to the Philippians, he says that we're to prove all things and then to hold fast, he says, to that which is good. So as believers, we have a calling. It's not just an obligation. We have a calling to prove all things, to prove what we believe is, is right according to the word. And, you know, I believe this is a process. I've said this many times over the years. I don't believe we have all the truth. I think we're striving to understand the word, to apply the word, to live by the word. But, you know, Yahweh's word is a big word. And, and uh, certainly, I think we're all searching. So, again, this is uh, something we should be doing as believers. And, you know, for the most part, this is the mission and purpose of this ministry. When we began many years ago, it was not our intentions necessarily to have an assembly. We did not want a place to meet. It was just the family and us. And the intent, the purpose, the mission statement, if you will, of what we were doing was simply to preach the truth without compromise. Because we've seen compromise over the years. We don't want to compromise any more. We don't want to see that. We want to simply preach the truth as it is. And I think, again, that's a big part of what it is to be a believer. Now, before getting into the message, I want to say this from the beginning. This message is not to condemn it is not to criticize. It is not to look down upon those who may be unaware of these truths. So I want to make sure we all understand that. At this point, at one point, you know, many of us were still within this system of worship. We were keeping Sunday or so something else. You know, the other consideration is this, and I think we need to be very cognizant of this as believers. There's a lot of great people in every denomination. There's a lot of good people in every denomination, and they mean well, and I think Yahweh looks upon many of them favorably because they're doing what they understand to be true. So again, this message is not to condemn, criticize, or look down upon those who may not understand what we do here. So here's a summary of what we're going to review in this message. Uh, number one, here's a pagan roots of Easter, Halloween, and Christmas. Number two is a misnomer that the Messiah died on the cross and also its pagan origins. And number three, the derisive uh, etymology, etymologies of some of the most common words within mainstream worship. So let's begin with Easter. Understand why we don't observe this day. And again, this is not a condemnation message. You know, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to the Bible and, you know, you're doing these things, we would simply ask that you research, that you prove this out. Because, you know, if you're, if you're preaching the truth, you should have nothing to fear. We should be able to stand in boldness with that truth. So, again, why don't we do Easter? From scholarship, we know that this day is connected with pagan worship from the Anglo-Saxons. So here's what the uh, New Unger's Bible Dictionary says about this day. I'm going to use all very well 
scholarly references. It says uh, there, the word Easter is of Saxon origin. That's for the goddess of spring, in whose honor sacrifices were offered about Passover time each year. So you see there's a correlation between Easter and Passover as far as timing goes. So by the 8th century, Anglo-Saxons had adopted the name to designate the celebration of Christ's resurrection. So we see here the reason and how Easter came into the religion we know of today. It was from the Anglo-Saxons and from a deity known as Estra or Istra. This was the goddess of spring. Now, for a moment, let's explore who were the Anglo-Saxons. Who were these people? These were Germanic peoples who inhabited England between the 5th and 10th centuries CE. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Anglo-Saxons represented a mixture of Germanic peoples along with Britain's pre-existing Celtic inhabitants. And we all know the Celtics, they had a lot of issues, a lot of pagan traditions there, and also subsequent Vikings and Danish invaders. So there was a diverse group that were that, that made up the uh, Anglo-Saxons. Now, as we see from this reference, it was around the 8th century that the church adopted Easter to represent the Messiah's death. Now, or resurrection is, why did they do this? Why did the Messiah, or why did the church adopt Easter? What was really the reason and motivation behind this? Well, you know, historically, and this is one of the things I really love about history, because if you simply read the history of the church without opening up even a Bible, you're going to realize and understand why the church did many of the things they did. And here's the reason. Here's the motivation they had for adopting Easter. The reason was is to grow the church. They wanted a few, a few of the pews. They, they wanted to grow again the church. And by doing this, they brought in the pagans or brought in those people who were observing this, this uh, belief. Now, there's a term for this, and that term is syncretism. Most of you probably know that term by now, syncretism. Syncretism is referring to when we blend different ideas, to blend different belief systems. In this case, it's to blend the Bible with pagan traditions, again, which we see over and over again with the early church. Now, from the Bible, we know that Yahweh warned Israel many times not to do this. Yahweh warned the Israelites, not to, not to blend, not to add, not to take away, not to, not to modify his word from what he commanded. Matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2, a very common passage. Yahweh says there, he commanded Israel there, do not learn the ways of the heathen, he says. Do, don't do it. Don't learn the ways of the heathen. Now listen, there is no admissible reason ever to add or remove from Yahweh's word. We're to worship him as he defines it. And again, that's the goal of this ministry. We are here, we strive to worship Yahweh as he defines it within the word, apart from 2,000 years of man-made church tradition. So what do we know about this worship by the Anglo-Saxons? Or this worship again, was to honor the goddess of spring, which goes all the way back really to, the, to uh, Nimrod or Tammuz. You know, as we know from mythology, Tammuz was reborn as the sun, and we see this over and over and over again through different mythologies, different belief systems. You know, the other connection with this day is fertility and rebirth, which is see- seen through, all, through spring, and by the way, this is also where things like eggs and Easter bunnies come from. It's reproductive, this fertility. But it's not based on Yahweh's word. It's, again, based on pagan concepts which were adopted by the church very early on. Now, again, I, I ask why did the church do this? Or again, to, to, uh, to grow its membership. You know, this is not something we should be, good to do, be doing. And in many ways, it reminds me of the story of Rehoboam, you know, in Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam? He um, changed worship to prevent the Israelites from going back to Judah to make sure that his people would remain where they were. In many ways, this is analogous to what we find with a church in history. They would do this to make sure that the people would remain or bring the people in, as we find here. 
where the problem is, again, this practice goes against the Bible. You know, we find warnings from Genesis to Revelation of not mixing, not deviating, not changing, not adding, not removing from the scriptures. You know, I'll give you two examples. For one, why did, Abra- why, why did Yahweh tell Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees? Was it simply to, to, to remove Abraham from his family? No, of course not. Ur of the Chaldees, this was a major location of pagan worship. And Yahweh wanted to separate Abraham from that pagan worship. Now, we also know from the book of Revelation that John of Patmos, who was inspired to write, come out of her, my people. You know, I believe that this is one of the most important commands we find within the word, come out of her, my people. This means that we're to come out of any system that deviates from Scripture. So if we're doing something that deviates from Scripture, Scripture says that we're to come out of this system. That's the message we find there in Revelation chapter 18. Come out of her, my people. Well, let's move on. What about Halloween? What do we know about Halloween? We know that Halloween derives from the Celts, and that here's what the Encyclopedia of Religion says about this day. It says a British church attempted to divert the interest in pagan customs by adding a Christian celebration to the calendar on some date as the Samhain. The Christian festival, the Feast of All Saints, commemorates the known and unknown saints of the Christian religion, just as the Sawin had acknowledged and paid tribute to the Celtic deities. So as we see here, Halloween was adopted, again, for what purpose? Halloween was adopted to, again, convert the pagan population. That's the reason the church decided to incorporate, to adopt this day. This is really no different from what we saw with Easter and what we see with many other days. Now, as we see here, Halloween was adopted from a day known as Sawin. Sawin. So what do we know about this day, Sawin? Or here's what the History Channel says about this, this Times from History.com. This is Sawin is a pagan religious festival originating from an ancient Celtic spiritual tradition. In modern times, Sawin is usually celebrated from October 31st to November 1st to welcome in the harvest and usher in the, quote, dark half of the year, the winter. Celebrants believe that the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break down during Samhain, allowing more interaction between humans and denizens of the other world. So as we see here, Samhain is a pagan celebration that goes all the way back to, again, the ancient Celts. This time, number one, was to welcome in the harvest and also to usher in, as it says here, the dark half of the year, which would be winter. You know, realize that these people were very superstitious. You know, when they, they saw the days decreasing, they were concerned. The you know, sun was going away, and they worshipped the sun. They worshipped many of these nature elements, and that, that is in part what we see here. It was also believed that during this time that the dead or deceased was able to move around or walk amongst the living. To deceive the uh, spirits of the dead, the people would then dress in costumes representing the deceased. And this is where, if, if, you've, if you've guessed this, is where we receive this tradition of dressing up in ghoulish costumes during the Halloween celebration. Again, it goes all the way back to Samhain. It's amazing when you trace these things back that we're doing exactly what they were doing. We, we simply relabel it with something different. Now, so, uh, uh, moving on, another day that really gives a lot of people heartburn and And it is hard. It really is hard. But let's move on and talk a little bit about Christmas. So where does this Christmas celebration come from? Why don't we do it? Why don't we observe this day? Or, you know, we can trace it back to multiple multiple observances within ancient Rome. It actually even goes beyond ancient Rome. But I like to start with Rome because that's generally where, where it ties or traces back to with these Roman festivals. So here's a few examples. One example is Saturnalia. This was a week-long festival in Rome, and it was celebrated or kept in December and was honor of the god at Saturn. Another example is uh, Mithra, Mithraism. This was a mystery religion. Converts were typically men, and the deity Mithra was supposedly uh, born. Birthday was December 25th. And again, this is very, very well known. Now, another tradition is Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus is, means literally open and unconquered sun. And uh, here's what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about this day, Sol Invictus. So the Britannica says, during the later periods of Roman history, sun worship gained an importance and ultimately led to what 
has been called a solar monotheism. I really find that fascinating, solar monotheism. That means basically that everything revolved religiously around the sun during this time for Rome. It says nearly all the gods of the period were possessed of solar qualities. In other words, solar attributes were applied to these different deities. And again, keep in mind, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica, very common source. It says, and both Christ and Mithra acquired the traits of solar deities. So, so Messiah, Messiah was applied with these solar, solar qualities. It says, a feast of Sol Invictus, open unconquered sun on December 25th. So that's when it was observed. December 25th was celebrated with great joy. And eventually this date was taken over by the Christians as Christmas, the birthday of Christ. And again, this is, this is the Encyclopedia Britannica. So as we see here, Christmas was adopted from Sol Invictus, which had nothing to do with the Bible. What it was, was ancient sun worship. Whereas we've already seen with Easter and Halloween, this was again to convert the pagans. You see, they could not remove this influence. So instead of trying to remove the influence, they simply adopted the influence. Instead of worshiping the S-U-N, they relabeled it. And now they're worshiping the S-O-N. But again, we're seeing many of the same traditions. Number one, you know, Scripture says not to worship like the pagans. Don't learn the ways of the heathen. Number two, so much of the Christmas celebration traditions still usher back to these Roman festivals. For instance, it was very common during Saturnalia to use evergreens. And again, I would encourage you, if you're new to this faith, I would encourage you, don't take my word. Don't believe a word I'm saying. Go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Go to these other encyclopedias. You will find the truth. They would give gifts during Saturnalia. Many other traditions we find, we, they're simply carryovers of what we find very anciently. So as believers, we must make a distinction when it comes to proper worship. We again have an obligation to worship Yahweh as he and he alone defines it. This means, again, that we can't add, we can't remove, we can't manipulate. And again, that's the purpose and mission of this ministry, to simply preach the word as we find it. I'm going to uh, transition now to some of the uh, pagan symbols, etymology we find within nominal worship today. And I'd like to begin with the cross. And again, I know this is sensitive for a lot of people, but it's not hard to prove. It really isn't. You know, what if I told you that the Messiah never died on the cross? that he never died on a cross, and that the symbol of the cross is, is connected with paganism. Well, the word cross is seen in most English Bibles, derives from the Greek word staros, staros. And staros refers to an upright polar post, does not refer to a cross. As an example, here's what we find from Vines. Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, Again, a very credible source, very mainstream source, and it says this, Staros, which is 4716 in Strong's, it says denotes primarily an upright polar state. So this is what the word Staros means within Greek. It says, on such malefactors were nailed for execution, both the noun and the verb Staro, to fasten or a stake or a pell, are originally to be distinguished from the ecclesiastical form of the two-beamed cross. The shape of the letter, ladder had its origin in ancient Chaldea. Chaldea, by the way, was Babylon. That's another name. And was used as a symbol of the god Tammuz. Tammuz. Being in the shape of the mystic Tau, the initial of his letter. In that country and in adjacent lands, including Egypt. By the middle of the 3rd century AD, the churches had either departed from or had traveled or had travestied certain doctrines of the Christian church in order to increase the prestige of the apostate ecclesiastical system, pagans were received into the churches apart from regeneration by faith. Now think about what I just said there. I'm going to read that just one more time. And again, this is from a very mainstream source. This is not from a source that that we would choose based on our faith. No, most ministers, and no no matter what denomination, would choose this source. So I'm going to read this one more time. It says the the, the last uh, sentence there, in order to increase... The prestige of the apostate ecclesiastical system, pagans were received into the churches apart from regeneration of faith, meaning that these people were brought in without any change. 
There was no change required. There was no regeneration of faith. There was no modification or requirement to change. Now it goes on to say this, and were permitted largely to retain their pagan signs and symbols. Isn't that amazing? They were brought in, no requirement to change anything, and they were allowed to maintain these pagan symbols. Hence, the Tower of the Tias, in its most frequent form, with the cross piece lowered, was adopted to stand for the cross of Christ as a or X, which Constantine declared he had seen in a vision leading him to champion the Christian faith. That letter was the initial of the word Christ and had nothing to do with the cross. A lot of people are confused with that as well. So we see here that the Greek word staros, again, which is generally rendered cross in most translations, refers to an upright polar post or a state. doesn't refer to two pieces of lumber in a cross shape. In fact, according to Vines, both the noun and the verb refers to the same thing, and that again is to an upright pole. Now, where did this tradition of the cross originate according to this reference? Where it says here, according to Vines, and again, I'm going to just emphasize this point because it's important, this is not a reference that would be unique to this faith. Most ministers, no matter what denomination, they will know about vines, and they use vines. This is a well-accepted reference. But according to vines, this arose through ancient Chaldea. Now, as I mentioned, Chaldea is another name for Babylon. So this arose through Babylonian worship. Now, what did the cross symbolize for the Babylonians? Or is a symbol of Tammuz we see? Tammuz. Now, who is Tammuz? Well, Tammuz goes all the way back to Nimrod. Supposedly, Nimrod died. He was then resurrected as Tammuz and now symbolizing the sun. Nimrod also is the founder of all pagan Babylonian worship. So the cross goes back to Tammuz, which goes back to Nimrod. Now, even if we knew better, even if we knew better for a moment. Let's assume that the Messiah did die on a cross. Again, we know better. But let's assume he died on a cross. As believers, why would we choose to embrace an ancient pagan symbol that was used by ancient pagan Babylonia as a symbol of our faith? Why would we do that? You know, the whole thing seems very nonsensical to me. Now, in addition to vines, the companion Bible also shows why the Greek word staros doesn't refer to a cross. I want to read that reference. And again, this is from a very, very good reference, very great reference. The companion Bible says in the Greek New Testament, two words are used for the cross. It says in which the Lord was put to death. I'm going to read it just as it is. The word staros, which denotes an upright polar stake to which the criminals were nailed for execution. So again, it's saying that it's not a cross, it's just an upright pole. Zulon. Now, this is another word that is often used. It's normally tree, though. So Zulon, which generally denotes a piece of dead log or wood or timber for fuel or for any other purpose. It is like uh, dendron, which is used of a living or green uh, tree, as in Matthew 21.8, Revelation 7.1.3, says etc. So the latter word, Zulon, is used for the former staros. It shows us that the meaning of each is exactly the same. The verb star means to drive stakes. Our, old, our English word cross is translated is a translation of the Latin crux. But the Greek staros no, no more means a crux than the word stick means a crutch. Homer uses the word staros in an ordinary pillar stake or in a single piece of timber. And this is the meaning and usage of the word throughout classical, the, the cla- uh, Greek classics. So early on, staros was an upright pole in Greek. And again, that's where we receive the word cross. It says it never means two pieces of timber placed across one another at any single, at any angle. But always as one piece alone. Hence, the use of, word, of the word zulon in connection with the manner of our Lord's death, it says, and rendered a tree in Acts 5.30, 10.39, 13.29, Galatians 3.13, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Is, this is preserved in our old English name, rod, or root or rod. Now this, 
latter point here is real, real fascinating. It says that catacombs in Rome bear the same testimony. Christ is never represented there as, quote, hanging on a tree. Or hanging on a cross, I should say. And the cross itself is only portrayed in a veiled and uh, hesitating manner. In the Egyptian churches, a cross was a pagan symbol of life, barred by the Christians and reinterpreted in the pagan manner. So as we see here from the Companion Bible, Starus refers not to a cross, not to two pieces of lumber placed in that shape, but no, to an upright polar stake. And this is how the word was used within the classic Greek language. Now, another point he makes here is in reference to the ancient Roman catacombs. Now, it's real fascinating. I discovered this a few years ago, Roman catacombs. Most scholars believe that the catacombs in Rome were used between the 2nd and 4th centuries CE, so about 200 years, about 200 years after the Messiah, that served as an underground burial for early Christians. Now, you would think, you would think that if the Messiah died on a cross, that we would see depictions within these Roman catacombs. But again, according to Bollinger, we don't see depictions of Yahshua hanging on a cross. It's just missing. And really, when you, when you look through history, Constantine is the one who popularized the use of the cross. Now, as we also see here, the cross is a, is a pagan symbol, very long pagan symbol. The Egyptian churches borrowed it, and it was reinterpreted then for the Messiah. See, that's called syncretism again. When we reinterpret something that was originally pagan and we then superimpose that upon Scripture, that is syncretism. We are blending Scripture with error. And Yahweh says, don't do that. He says within his word, you worship me as I define worship. He says, don't learn the ways of the heathen. He says, don't go and learn how they're worshiping their mighty ones. It's amazing. You know, I could spend all day long reading passages of Yahweh warning Israel and passages in the New Testament showing that we must make a distinction, showing that we must make a separation, showing that we cannot worship as those outside of Scripture. Now, even the Encyclopedia Britannica, again, again, the Britannica, nobody would doubt the validity of the Britannica. And here's what it says about the cross. Let me read this to you. It says, From its simplicity of form, the cross has been used both as a religious symbol and as an ornament from the dawn of man's civilization. This is not something new to Christianity. Various objects dating from periods long anterior to the Christian era have been found marked with cross of different designs in almost every period of the old world. India... Syria, Persia, and Egypt all have yielded numberless examples, while numerous instances dating from the latter Stone Age to Christian times have been found in nearly every part of Europe. The use of the cross as a religious symbol is in pre-Christian times. In other words, it predates Christianity. And among non-Christian peoples may probably be regarded as almost universal. And in very many cases, it was connected with some form of nature worship. So as we see here, the origin of the cross is undeniably pagan. The fact is, it was used by pagans long before the church adopted it for the Messiah. Again, they reinterpreted it for the Messiah. But it was used by many other religions prior to that. Even the Nazis used a form of the cross I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's a form of the cross. You know, according to this reference here, it's found in nearly every part of the world, including India, Syria, Persia, Egypt. In fact, it was used almost universally, it says. In many cases, used in nature worship. Now we'll move on now and talk about another fossilized tradition. That is the etymology of the word church. Many people use this word without really recognizing or understanding its roots where this name, where this word came from. You know, while billions of people use this as a place of worship, as a symbol of their faith, we'll see here that this is not a term we should really be using as believers. So as evidence, here's the etymology from the Webster's New 20th 
century dictionary. So it says here, and this is the etymology of the word church, it says kirka, kirki, from the Anglo-Saxon circe, the circe, Latin kirikon, a church from the Greek kirika, supply doma house, the Lord's house, from kirikos, belonging to the Lord or master, kyrios, Lord, master, kairos, supreme power, authority. So there's two important points here. Number one, the word a church primarily refers to a building. Now we'll see later that this is different from what we find within the Greek and the Hebrew. The Greek word for church is, means a congregation. So it's something different. Number two, one of the uh, etymological roots of church here is from the Anglo-Saxon circe or kirke. Now, a fact that many people don't realize is that this word, Circe, is connected with a pagan goddess. And again, I'm going to read from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So here's what it says about this DSA. Circe, in Greek legend, a sorceress, the daughter of Helios, the sun god. Isn't that amazing how sun worship creeps up time and time again? And of the ocean nymph, Perse. She was able, by means of drugs and incantations, to change humans into wolves, lions, and swine. And again, this is where, partially where this word church derives from. So from this Greek sorceress that could turn humans into animals. So as believers, should we use a word that refers to a Greek sorceress to describe the body of believers. You know, time and again, the Bible shows that as believers, again, we must worship in spirit and truth. We must make a separation between what is right and what is wrong. And for this reason alone, we should avoid the word church as it pertains to Yahweh's worship. As I mentioned, this word really doesn't convey even what we find within the Greek of the New Testament. The Greek word is ekklesia, ekklesia. Now, as a reminder, the, uh, the Webster's Dictionary, the uh, definition there really referred to a building. But again, not the word ekklesia. Now, the Thayer's Greek lexicon defines this word, ekklesia, as a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place in an assembly. So it's an assembly. So the emphasis is not on a building, but on a gathering of people. And that's one reason why it doesn't really fit what we find. Well, the same thing is also true for the Hebrew kahal. Kahal is Hebrew for an assembly. So when we see talking about the congregation of the assembly, that's kahal in the Hebrew. Brown driver in Hebrew Briggs lexicon, Hebrew lexicon, defines this word as an assembly, a company, a congregation, a convocation. It's a gathering. It's, it's an assembly. It's a called out group of people. But it's not a building. And the problem is the word church does not convey that. The word church conveys a building. And again, it refers back to this Greek sorceress based on the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that's why we refrain from that. You know, one of the um, fascinating things, uh, Tyndale, in his 16th century translation, when he came across this word ecclesia, he never used the word church. He only used the word congregation. Now, there, there was one was an exception to that, and that was in Acts 19, verse 37, where it refers to a pagan temple. But everything else is congregation. It's not church. Now, another fossilized custom I want to review is the etymology of the word God. To understand where this word comes from and, and understand why we don't use it. And I want to say this one more time. Maybe I'll say it again before I'm done. But this message is not to beat up on anybody. This message is not to condemn. This message is not to criticize. Because look, many of us were where many people are today. And I believe that as people, we need to be people of mercy and compassion. And we need to guide people and do it in love. So this is not a message in condemnation. We are not better because we may understand certain things that others may not. Now, many people, again, they don't realize this term, 
They don't understand the origins of this word. But as we'll see, it really refers to a molten image. And I want to, again, refer to the Encyclopedia Britannica. I'm using that quite a bit today. One reason I like the Britannica, it is a very valid source. Nobody really doubts the validity of the Britannica. So here's what it says about this word God. It says God, the common Teutonic word for a personal object of a religious worship. It is thus applied to all those superhuman beings of the heathen mythologies who exercise power over nature and man and are often identified with some particular sphere of activity and also to the visible material objects, whether an image of the supernatural being or a tree, pillar, etc., used as a symbol and idol. The word God on the conversation of the Teutonic races to Christianity was adopted. Now, we're going to see this more. So it's Teutonic in nature, and it was adopted by them. But it was adopted as the name of the one supreme being, the creator of this universe, and the persons of the Trinity. So we see here that the, the, the word God was adopted by the Teutonic people. So as the New English Dictionary points out that whereas the old Teutonic types of the word is neuter, corresponding to the Latin Newman, in the Christian application it becomes masculine. And that even where the earlier neuter form is still kept, as in Gothic and Old Norwegian, the construction is masculine. God is a word common to all Teutonic languages. So the word God is known in these ancient German languages. It says in Gothic, it is Guth. Dutch has the same form as English. Danish and Swedish have Gud, German Gut. According to the New English Dictionary, the original may have found in two Aryan roots, both of the form Gru and uh, one of which means to invoke, the other to pour. The last is used of sacrificial offerings. The word would thus mean the object either of religious invocation or of religious worship by sacrifice. It, is also, it has been also suggested that the word might mean a molted image from the sense to pour. So we see here that the word God, this title that so many use, comes from the Teutonic or Germanic language, refers to any deity within pagan mythology, and possibly also refers to a molted image. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I'd rather not use a word in reference to the one I worship that may refer to pagan mythology or to a molten image. And it's really that simple. We are to esteem... We are to honor the one we worship. And we should never use a word that would demean the one we worship. You know, some might argue, though, where it doesn't mean that today. My reply is, why risk upsetting the one we worship? Why not go the extra mile? Why not make the extra effort to make sure that the words we're using, specifically in reference to the one we worship, are pure in nature? You know, I think he deserves that. I know he deserves that. I know that Yahweh would look favorably upon those who go that extra mile to make sure that their language, especially in reference to him, is pure. Remember, you know, what happened on Sinai when the Israelites offended Yahweh there. They made that golden calf. And, um, you know, it's interesting about that episode is that when you read the context, that calf was a substitute for Yahweh. It wasn't as if they were coming up with a new religion. They were still worshiping Yahweh, but they were now doing this through this molten golden calf. Was Yahweh pleased with the Israelites? No, absolutely not. We know the story. Many died because of that. Many Israelites died because of that, because they thought they knew, they knew best. They thought they could, they could fudge a little bit. They thought that Yahweh would not mind to use a molten calf in representing him. So that doesn't work. It doesn't work. So again, do we want to risk calling the one we worship by a title that refers to pagan mythology, possibly to a molten image, or do we want to use a word that we know would be honoring to him? And by the way, that's why we use Elohim. Elohim is... Hebrew, we know there's certainly nothing wrong with this word. Or the answer is emphatically no. We would never want to use a word or a phrase or anything that would be upsetting to the one we worship. Well, I want to go a step further now and talk about another 
possible connection. We've already sort of talked about it, but this connection of God to the Teutonic language. Now, here are two references, both from the 1800s, confirming the fact that this word was used as a proper name, more than likely, by the Teutonic people, and for multiple deities. So the first one is the Edinburgh Review, or Critical Journal. It says this. It says, it is much more difficult to trace the Teutonic word God back to its origin. But listen, it says, there is no doubt that the supreme being has always been called by the name in all Germanic tongues. We can only say, therefore, that God was probably an old Teutonic word used long before the introduction of Christianity to signify either one supreme being or gods in general. Indeed, we find that in the Old Norse, God is the neuter means a grave image or idol. Another reference here, this is Teutonic Mythology by Jacob Grimm, 1882 pages 13 and 15. It says, In all Teutonic tongues, the supreme being was always, was always, with one consent, been called by the general name God. Some remarkable uses of the word God in our older speech and that of the common people may have a connection with heathen notions. So we see here some really great information with this word. They confirm, number one, that the word God in the Teutonic tongue was a proper name for their supreme deity, for their supreme being. Number two, we see that this word existed long before, long before Christianity. And number three, the word God refers to a graven image or idol and to heathen notions. So again, I ask, would Yahweh want us to use a term in reference to him that was used long before to refer to pagan, pagan worship. Now, there's no justifying using this word. There really isn't. Now, again, this isn't to con- condemn those who don't know. But, you know, as believers, and one of the, one of the passages I, I use pretty often is Acts 17.30. And Acts 17.30 says something like this. It says, Yahweh winks at our ignorance, but then commands that we repent. Now, when we're ignorant of something, Yahweh's not going to condemn us. But if we know something to be right, if we know something to be true, we have an obligation to pursue that truth. So again, while we're ignorant, that's why we don't condemn those who are ignorant, those who may not understand. But once we understand, we have an obligation to verify that and to follow it if it's true. You know, the Bible is very clear. We're to honor, hallow, sanctify, and praise the one we worship. And I don't believe we can do that using a term that ushers back to the old Teutonic language referring to their own deities. I'll say again, this is not to demean or criticize those who may not know or understand this. Now, the next and last fossilized tradition we're going to review is this term Lord. Did you know that the word Lord is demeaning to Yahweh and likely also of pagan origin. It's also prophesied. It's also prophesied. We'll see that when we close. Here's an example from the Barnhart Concise Dictionary of Etymology. Again, a very well-accepted reference. It says, Lord, before 1121, Laverd, Lord, about 1250, developed from Old English, Laford, Master of the household, ruler, superior. Literally, now listen to this, one who guards a loaf or loaves. So that's the meaning of the word Lord. It comes from the Hebrew, or the Hebrew, the English, Laford, from 1250. And it means master of the household, sovereign. But it also means, literally means, one who guards a loaf. One who guards a loaf, a loaf of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but to use a word that conveys such a minimal task to the one we worship seems demeaning. It seems demeaning to me that we would use a term in reference to a keeper of a loaf to the supreme mighty one of this grand universe. Yahweh is so much more than this. Now, beyond this obvious concern, there's another reason we're to avoid this, 
And this reason is the connection between Lord and Baal. And for those who don't know Baal, Baal was a deity, actually the name of many deities, and Yahweh, our Father in heaven, he appalled Baal worship. He hated Baal worship, so that we all understand that. So the New Unger's Bible Dictionary, here's the definition here for Baal. Baal, Hebrew Baal, Lord, notice that, this is what it means, possessor. A common name for God among the Phoenicians, also the name of their chief mill god. See, gods are uh, false. The word is used of the master of a house, of a landowner, of an owner of cattle, and so on. The word is often used as a prefix of names of towns and men. For example, Baal Gad, Baal Hanan. There's many, many, many examples where, where that is the case. So several things to point out here. Number one, the word Baal was a common name for Phoenician deities. It was also used in reference to their main or chief deity. Number two, similar to the English word Laford, where we derive the word Lord, the word Baal can mean also master of the house, so there's a connection there. Now, some people will downplay this connection, say there's not really a connection here between Lord and Baal, but I believe that we do see a connection between the two. If nothing else, I believe that we see a connection with the prophecy. I'm going to close with this today. And I want you to really listen to this prophecy and think about what we find scripturally because when I discovered this many years ago, it sort of blew my mind. The fact that Yahweh prophesied, I believe anyway, what we are seeing in this day and age. So the passage is Jeremiah chapter 23, and I'm going to read verse 20 and 27. It says, The anger of Yahweh shall not return until, it, until he has executed till he has performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you shall consider it perfect. That's verse 20. In the latter days, you shall understand it. In the latter days. Verse 27 says, Which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal, were Lord. Because Baal means Lord. Isn't that amazing? You know, we see in verse 20 that this prophecy is for the latter days. It says, in the last days, in the latter days, you shall understand it. In other words, this is going to make sense at the end of days. We're going to see a fulfillment of this. And I believe we're seeing the fulfillment of what Jeremiah foretells here in our own day and age. For the most part, we know that Yahweh's name has been replaced by this generic title, Lord. Yahweh's name in the Hebrew Old Testament occurs 6,823 times. That's almost 7,000 times. If we were reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, we would read Yahweh almost 7,000 times. But you don't see it in English. Because English followed a long-standing tradition held by the Jews. The Masoretes, between the 6th and 10th century CE, these were Jewish scribes. They invented the vowel-pointing system. Now, this started long before the Masoretes, this tradition, though. The uh, Jews believed that Yahweh's name was too holy to be used. And as a result, many Jews anyway, most I would say. And as a result, they stopped pronouncing the inevitable name, as they would say. Matter of fact, the um, Talmud has a reference referring to Simon, I think, Simon the just, Simon the righteous. And it says there that after the death of Simon the just, that the Shekinah, and Shekinah is, well, it's not a word we actually find in Scripture, but it refers to Yahweh's glory, and that the Shekinah departed after the death of Simon the Just. And I believe that was 2nd century BCE. So according to the Talmud, the Jews stopped pronouncing the name after this time. Now, the way the, um, what the Masoretes would do is they would vow point yod heh the tetragrammaton, 
with the Hebrew word, or the vowel points from the Hebrew word, Adonai, which is where many are getting this nonsensical version of Jehovah from. But they did this not to show us a spelling of the divine name. They did this to conceal the name, Adonai. Now, Adonai, if you translate Adonai into English, is generally rendered Lord, although it can be master or sovereign. That's how we've uh, rendered it in the uh, RSB. But generally speaking, people see Adonai, they're going to render that Lord. So what were the Christian, not Christian per se, but the uh, Bible scholars translated the Bible into English, they followed this same tradition. They followed the same tradition of using a substitute for the name instead of allowing the name to appear in the text where we find it within the Hebrew. Again, that's another reason why we should be using the name and not Lord. Lord is a substitute for the most precious name in this universe. It was inserted to hide, to conceal, to follow the same pattern what the Masoretes were doing. But we see here a prophecy. Getting back to what we see here. We see here a prophecy. And this prophecy says that in the latter days, something's going to happen. And it says, in the latter days, the people will forget my name for Baal. Baal means Lord. For me, that's not a stretch. For me, that's not a stretch to understand that Baal means Lord. And Bible prophecy says in the latter days, my names will be forgotten for Baal. I believe what we see here in Jeremiah is being fulfilled right now. And again, that's the reason, another reason why we should not be using this word. You know, the bottom line is, as believers, we're to prove all things. We're to hold fast to that which is good, Scripture says. And listen, I want to say one more time, I share this not to condemn or to criticize. If you're new here, new online, I would encourage you to study this out, to prove it, to take out your Bible, Take out the Britannica, take out these other references, read it. Because look, if you take my word for it, that doesn't do you any good. What does you good is if you research this, if you understand this, if you're convicted of this message, that is when it is, it is a benefit to you. It is not a benefit until you are convicted of it. So I would encourage you not to take my word for anything, but to study it out, because the truth is there. It really is. It's not hard to prove. We just simply need to be willing to look to do our own research. Again, we're told within the word to have a ready answer to all who might ask. You know, when we do this, and I want to close with this, when we do this, not only are we blessed because we know the truth, right? We're blessed because we know the truth, but when we know the truth, we can be a blessing to others by also sharing the truth with them. May Yahweh bless you.